Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart. And I'm Nick Gosling. And today we are joined by Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd is senior pastor at Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And he's the author of numerous books, notably for libertarians, is his popular Myth of a Christian Nation. His most recent book has been about 10 years in the making, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, and the book forthcoming on August 15th, Cross Vision, is a shorter version of this much larger tome. In these books, Boyd tackles the topic of violent depictions of God in the Bible and how we should read the scriptures, even the violent ones, in the light of the image of Christ. Greg doesn't really identify as a libertarian, though because of his stance on nonviolence and being a proponent of Christian anarchism, libertarian Christians often love Greg's approach to the scriptures, and they have told me many times that they really uh, were, were converted uh, in a number of ways by by his way of thinking. Greg, this one's a big one to tackle. Could you tell us a bit about how you started thinking and wrestling through this problem? Well, I think I really began to get serious with this question, um, I'd say maybe 15 years ago. I, I you know, Throughout the 90s, I just got, I felt like I got clearer and clearer about how central nonviolence is to uh, Jesus's revelation of God and uh, and to his kingdom ethic. Um, and you know we're, we're to love like God loves, and God loves like the sun shines and like the rain falls. Uh, it loves indiscriminately, and that's the kind of love we're to aspire and to uh, not retaliate and all of that. So the, the clearer I got about uh, Jesus and nonviolence, the more problematic these Old Testament passages uh, became. The ones that were you know God says, "Show no mercy, slaughter them all." Uh, you know, one point Yahweh says in Jeremiah 13, "I'll smash families together, parents and children alike." And just some really gruesome stuff. And people in my congregation, as I was preaching about the nonviolent God uh, that's revealed in, 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 in Christ, um, people would come up and ask me, well, what about these passages? I finally decided about, I, I was almost 11 years ago now, that uh, I needed to come to terms with this. And so I was going to write, spend a summer writing a little book where I would just kind of offer all the best explanations I had acquired over the years as to why. Um, uh, God had to <clears throat> command genocide and had to do all these other vicious things. And so I sat down and collected all the na- nasty passages and had all my explanations. And I started to write this book and I got about 40, 50 pages into it. And I finally s- decided I had to scrap the whole thing because my, my explanations just weren't cutting it. Uh, it, it. Frankly, they sucked. It was like, if this is the best we can do, we're in trouble. Um, and, and, uh, and so I had to start from scratch. And, and the conundrum that I'm in, and I think a lot of people are in, is, is this. On, on the authority of Jesus, I, you know, the New Testament presents Jesus and especially Jesus' uh, sacrificial death as the, the definitive revelation of God. This is what God is really like to his very essence, Hebrews 1.3. He's exact likeness of God's very uh, character and, and the, the representation of his very essence, hypostasis in Greek. And, and so um, I, I have to regard his revelation as definitive. But on the other hand, Jesus himself endorses the Old Testament as divinely inspired. And so I can't reject any of it. I have to embrace that. And yet I find passage, portraits of God in the Old Testament 
that seem to radically contradict what's revealed about Jesus in, in, in the New Testament. And so that's, that, that's the conundrum. Uh, now, I, I, I really got some good advice from Origen, a second, third century theologian, who, who says that when you come upon seemingly impossible conundrums in Scripture, contradictions, uh, or you come upon material that seems unworthy of God, and, and Origen and many other early church fathers regarded all of the, the violent depictions of God in the Old Testament as being unworthy of God. Um, he says, don't reject it as though it wasn't God's word. Don't get frustrated and angry. Rather, submit yourself to it, humble yourself, uh, rely on the Holy Spirit and keep on digging. And he says, you'll find that there is invariably a deeper truth that resolves the conundrum. And he, in his view, God intentionally put these things in Scripture, these mysteries, these contradictions and things like that, to, to, so that we mature as we dig and, and, and so we become more humble as we dig into the Word. And um, so I, I just did that for several months. And then at one point, I, uh, this could be a case of seeing the face in the clouds. I've been accused of that. But it could be revelatory. Uh, I don't know. Time will tell. But uh, it, it felt like it was a divine revelation where I began to see how all scripture, including the violent portraits of God, point to Jesus Christ and even point to his, self, his sacrificial death on the cross. As Jesus says, all scripture is supposed to do. It's all about him. In Luke 24, he says that all scripture is about how he has to die before he enters into glory. And, and um, I began to see this. It was like a magic eye, experiencing sort of a magic eye thing. You know, those books where you, you look at it, it's just kind of like wallpaper. But uh, if you look at it the right way, uh, you see this three-dimensional picture or object start to come out of the page. And it's kind of like what happened when I was having this experience. So I'm looking at these horrendous, violent portraits of God, but I began to see the cross in them, how, how uh, God is present in those texts um, in a self-sacrificial kind of way. You know, you mentioned you were writing this book many years ago and some of your sermons, and I was listening to those sermons. Um, I, I guess you, you call us all podrishioners, which is a clever yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. clever phrase. Um, and, you know, I was really looking forward to the book. I ordered the, the bigger one, uh, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, on the first day it was able to be pre-released. And one of the things that I was really amazed by upon reading it when I received it, I think it was uh, Good Friday, it arrived in the mail, and I was reading it, and I was like, wow, you're setting the bar even higher than I expected, because not only are you going to contribute to how do we understand these violent depictions of God in the Old Testament, you're, you're going as far as to say they somehow point to Christ, which, that, that's, well, that's why it took you, what, 1,300 pages to, to really spell it all out. Yeah, um, so. yeah 10 years and 1,300 pages. Uh, it, it, that change that I had, that experience, set me on a completely different course of research. Uh, and, and you're right, it's because um, I saw that the problem isn't to that we have to make God look a little nicer in the Old Testament, you know, to put the best possible spin on these horrendous portraits. Um, even if you succeeded in doing that, which is, which is a stretch, but even if you succeeded in making God look just and, and, and whatever, Kind of what Paul Copen does in his book, uh, Is God a Moral Monster? That's, I think, the best example. He does as good a job as anyone can do at, at trying to minimize the ugliness of these portraits and, and to try to put the best spin on them. But even if you succeed at doing that, you haven't succeeded at doing the most important thing, which is to show how all Scripture is about Jesus Christ and, and more specifically, uh, about the crucified Christ, about the revelation of, the revelation of God's nonviolent, enemy-embracing, uh, other-oriented love that's revealed uh, uh, most clearly on the cross. 
Uh, that's the challenge. And once you see that challenge, you now realize that putting the best spin on these, these, these uh, ugly portraits doesn't accomplish a whole lot. Well, and some people might accuse you of putting your spin on it because maybe, and, and this is just the accusation that I think a lot of people hear, I see it on Facebook a lot, where, well, you just want to make God seem nicer because, you know, it, Richard Dawkins got under your skin or something like that. And you're like, well, let's just, <laughs> let's just make God seem nicer. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're really approaching it as this is all about Jesus. This isn't about my modern sensibilities. Is that correct? Yeah, that's why in, in the crucifixion of the warrior God, I spend the first couple hundred pages uh, just laying down this foundation, uh, showing that th the way the New Testament presents Jesus, he's not one revelation among others. He's not even the greatest revelation among others. He is the revelation that culminates and surpasses all others. And, you know, so the, the author of Hebrews, to give one pass, one, one example here, he says, in the past, God spoke in various ways at sundry times. Um, the Phillips translation has he gave him glimpses of truth. But in these last days, in this last chapter of world history, he's given us his son, the son himself, who is the exact likeness of his character and expressed it, it very, the very image of his, his, uh, his essence. And so he's saying that you know, they got glimpses in the past, but now we've got the son himself. And, and so insofar as they saw true stuff, they were seeing what we see. It's just that we see it it, 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 clearly, we see he, he himself has come and has, has revealed himself to us. He had approximations in the past, but now we've got the, the full truth. And so it, it's scripture that drives us. I'm not trying to just have a nice, nice God. Uh, you know, Paul's the one who says that the cross is foolishness to the world and, and weakness to the world. But to us, it's the wisdom and power of God. And so he, he radically redefines what God's power is um, by the cross. The cross redefines everything, I think, in the New Testament. So that's what drives it. It's not a personal preference thing. It's a, it's a scriptural thing. So you feel bound to the image of Christ requires us to approach the Old Testament in the, in, in the manner that you've, you've done here. Absolutely. Um, if it all points to him, then our job is to read it in a way that points to him. And you see the New Testament authors doing this. You know, when they read the, the Old Testament, um, they're, they're, they're finding Christ all over the place. Um, it's not necessarily, you know, catching what the original authors thought about things. They assume that they have a perspective that transcends the original authors. And, and, uh, and so they're reading it uh, through this lens of Christ and finding Christ in, in a variety of ways. Crucifixion of the Warrior God is in two volumes. At what point in the process was that, did that become apparent as the, the way that you were doing it? I think when the book got to be about 700 pages, <laughs> it's like, okay, th this is... Uh, to, it's getting unwieldy for one volume. And it, it broke down conveniently into two halves. Uh, the first half is I'm describing what I call the cruciform hermeneutic, uh, developing, laying the, the, justifying this uh, way of reading scripture through the lens of the cross. That's a cruciform hermeneutic, and I flesh that all out. And then the second volume is what I call the cruciform thesis. And that's basically what you find when you read the Bible through this cross-centered way. Greg, you had mentioned origin earlier, and you cite origin multiple times throughout your book. Uh, one of my questions is, you know, given that origin was kind of even a controversial figure, even in his own day, uh, as a lot of people from the Alexandrian school of theologians uh, kind of were, what other examples from ancient Christianity, um, particularly the, like the apostolic fathers or the, the anti-Nicene fathers, um, the, the, would kind of lend support to your thesis here? Well, this way of, of uh, reading scripture, um, 
where, where you're not just bound to the original meaning of a passage, but you can find extra meanings in the passage. Uh, that was pervasive in the early church. In fact, that's been a fundamental assumption of the church throughout, throughout history. But if you're speaking specifically about the treatment of the, the violent uh, portraits of God, um, you've got Origen, uh, uh, who, by the way, wasn't controversial so much later on. Uh, his, his stuff was not uh, deemed at all, it wasn't pronounced heretical until the 6th century. And that was not about his way of interpreting the Old Testament violence. It was about uh, universalism and things like that. But you have Gregory of Nyssa um, was, was, uh, wrote on this, John Cassian. Uh, in fact, the, the, while or, Origen is the one who develops, by far away, develops it the most. But you have the, treating these texts allegorically in a number of, uh, of church fathers. In fact, you can find that in Justin Martyr. And so it was, it was not a, a formalized sort of practice, but that, that kind of general way of looking at things was, was, was found throughout. What, what, unfortunately, what happened was when the church inherited political power from Constantine uh, and all this wealth from Constantine and was invited to share the responsibility for running the state from Constantine, um, at that point, the, this way of interpreting scripture comes to an almost immediate grinding halt. Um, and the reason is because uh, what you can't run an empire unless you're willing to use violence. You have to use violence to protect the state from outsiders. You have to keep law and order inside. And so immediately you find Eusebius and Augustine and others begin to find clever ways of trying to justify violence. And so you have to try to find it in scripture. And now those portraits of God in the Old Testament uh, that used to be problematic now become advantageous. You can use those when you need to motivate people to go out and kill for God and country, which is the main function these passages have played throughout history. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, at that point, people don't want to find a Christ-centered meaning in these passages because you, you need the violence to run the country. It's an unfortunate development, in my opinion. So I'm really just trying to get back to this early church way of looking at it, although I don't use allegory. I, you know, that, that was a plausible way of interpreting things in their day. I don't think it's plausible anymore. Um, but their, their intuition that somehow these passages have to uh, point to uh, the, the God is revealed in Jesus Christ, that fundamental intuition is, is, I think, the one that we should recover. Well, yeah, and we've, we've talked about the Constantinian shift a number of times here in, in our material and, and on this show, and how there was such a dramatic watershed moment for the history of of Christianity in in a negative way, unfortunately. Yes. Um, but then moving throughout the, uh, the 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 Middle Ages and really all in between the early, the early Church Fathers and the Anabaptists, kind of coming onto the scene, that whole middle area there, the Middle Ages. Um, were there any any glimpses of of this hermeneutic during those times, or anyone? kind of saying, hey, let's go back and look to the fathers and see what they had to say, or was it just kind of totally thrown to the wayside by everyone until the Anabaptists? Well, it, it, it's hard to tell, uh, because you know, the church, whenever there's renegade groups, uh, they got slaughtered and all their writings burned. So we can only know what they believed on the basis of, of uh, what, they, um, you know, uh, what their detractors are saying about them. And you, you find some of them being accused of being Marcionites, um, it, which it could very well be just be that they're, they're the ones who are interpreting the, these Old Testament violent texts the way that the early church did. But now uh, the, their detractors are saying, oh, I know you're, you're not taking these passages seriously. But uh, 
Yeah, it's really only in the Anabaptists that you have uh, a, a, a beginning of a recovery of this way of, of, of reading scripture. And unfortunately, they also got slaughtered. And then all the leaders and the educated pastors got slaughtered, or almost all of them. And so they re, ended up retreating uh, for survival's sake and become sort of anti-education for a long, long period of time. And so you don't have any kind of developed theology among the Anabaptists after the uh, 16th and 17th centuries. Greg, I want to kind of come back to this whole vision of Jesus, because this is a big sticking point for a lot of Christians, because, you know, we, we don't only have a picture of Jesus in the Gospels and a few things that are said by Paul and John in one of the epistles. We also have the, you could say, the problem of the book of Revelation. And if there's any violent book in the New Testament, it's certainly that one. And could you explain why the depiction of Jesus in Revelation is not violent in the way we might assume? Because that seems to be like the get us off the hook to try to unravel the Old Testament. Because, well, Jesus was is going to be violent in the future, yeah, yeah, and therefore yeah. that can justify that, you know, God is sort of like this because Jesus looks like it in Revelation. Yeah, sure. Uh, see, if, 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 yeah, on a lot of people's accounts, uh, you know, so here Jesus is, while he's here the first time, he's love your enemies, turn the other cheek, you know, never retaliate. Uh, all that. But when he comes the second time, he comes with his sword and he slaughters millions and millions of people. <clears throat> that's yeah, like, that's man, the perception people have, yeah. Man, did he get in a bad mood? Uh, something's off there. You know, here's the thing, uh, and I have an appendix on this in uh, A Crucifixion of the Warrior God, um, as well as all the other passages that sometimes people point to in the New Testament that uh, that they think are, are violent. But um, a number of scholars have argued this, that, that, that what John does in Revelation, and when I first came upon this, man, it totally changed. I, I, didn't, I didn't used to like the book of Revelation. Now I love it. I think it's the most brilliant thing ever. But John takes these violent symbols, traditional symbols that are used in the Old Testament and in apocalyptic literature. And if you read the text carefully, he subverts it in profound ways. Um, and so, like a, 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 a real pinnacle scriptures in in Re- Revelations five, where John, you know, they're they're saying who's worthy to uh, to you know unseal the scroll, um, and the scroll is is about God's providence, how God how God wins in the end, you know, how, how's this going to happen, and and John hears the lion of the tribe of Judah, he'll do it, uh, he, he's worthy. But then when John looks, and this is a thing you find throughout Revelation, John hears one thing, but then he looks and he sees something very different, and what he sees interprets what he hears. So he looks, and what he sees is the slain lamb, um, the, the lamb of God. And, and this, in fact, the, the Greek word there is a connotation of a slain little lamb. And, and so what John's doing by combining these symbols, he says, yes, this is the line of the tribe of Judah, but the way he fights is as a little slain lamb. And you find this kind of subversion going on throughout the whole book of Revelation. Uh, the, the, the most gruesome passage is, is Revelation 19. And there... Um, uh, yeah, this Jesus, he's going into battle and he's got this, he's covered in blood. And this is a, a standard symbol. You find it back in Isaiah uh, 63, I think it is, or maybe 61. But uh, the, the warrior covered in blood, it, it, it denotes a warrior who's coming back from battle. And it was a badge of honor where you're covered with his blood because you slaughtered them and they didn't slaughter you. And so it's kind of this, this hero, kind of a brave heart moment, you know? But in Revelation, Jesus is covered in blood but he's covered in blood before he goes into battle. And what John is showing there, he's taking this traditional symbol, but by having it, him covered in blood be, by, before he goes into battle, like this is how he fights. He fights by shedding his blood. And so he's subverting this, this, this violent symbol. And he's got a sword, 
but the sword comes out of his mouth, which obviously can't be taken literally. Um, he's fighting with, by speaking the truth. And this is how his followers all fight. They, 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 they don't never pick up arms, but they are willing to lay down their life. They did not love their life even to the point of death. They speak the truth, and then they lay down their life, just like the lamb did. And, and that's how the battle unfolds. Um, and so, yeah, I think in all these images, uh, if you read them carefully, uh, they actually are all pointing to the, the, the victorious sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, not to a, a, a deity who all of a sudden got ticked off and decided to come back and chop off heads. Greg, you know, typically uh, that a lot of theologians, when they argue for uh, Christian nonviolence, that Christians should, uh, sh- should be nonviolent in, in our ethics, uh, they, they they typically would say, but God is allowed to you know inflict inflict violence or rather judgment because He's God. And, you know some notable examples that come up. You know Preston Sprinkle, who's been on this show, wrote a book on this topic, and that's his position. And Miroslav Volf uh, basically says that you know a, apart from some kind of final impending wrath, uh, it. The Christian nonviolence doesn't actually right, right, make right. make sense. So, what would you say to 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 that argument? Well, you know, I understand the concern. Uh, the concern is that, and Wolf is is explicit on this in his uh, inclusion and embrace or exclusion and embrace book um, that that if God never engages in violence, then how is sin to be punished? Uh, how, how do you even have a moral? Uh, there are no consequences, and how is that loving? If 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 those who you know, rape children and and engage in ruthless slaughtering of others. <laughs> um, if, if there's no consequences for that, then then how is God just? Here again, I submit we have to go back to the cross and ask, you know, what do we learn about judgment when it comes to the cross? People assume, and you find this throughout history, when it comes to how how God judges, we we assume that He must judge the way we judge, or the way that humans usually have judged. You know, we cut off heads and do all that, so God must do the same thing. But look at Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus stood in our place on the cross. He bore our sin. He bore our curse. Um, and and uh, in doing that, he is experiencing God's wrath. Now, in Mark, in fact, in, in, in Matthew as well, um, it, it, you can see it's his wrath because Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, if it's at all possible, Father. Um, but of course, in this case, it wasn't possible. But that cup uh, refers back to the cup in the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath. When to drink of that cup is a drink of his wrath. So Jesus is drinking of the wrath of God. But now let's not assume we know what that means. Let's let the cross teach us. Uh, there's no indication that the Father was angry with Jesus. Um, it just means Jesus is experiencing the death consequences of sin that we deserved. And for God to do that, he didn't have to afflict Jesus. I don't think he acted violently towards Jesus or was angry towards Jesus. All he did was, according to Paul and John, he, he turned him over. The father turned him over to wicked human beings and to principalities and powers who now are going to do what they want to do, and that is to kill the Son of God. Um, and, and that's how Jesus bears his judgment. Uh, all the father did is withdraw. Now, I've got several chapters on this where when you read the, the Bible through the lens of, of the cross, understanding that way of, of judging, that God simply withdraws, turns people over to experience the consequences of their sin, you begin to find it all over the place. In fact, in, in multitudes of passages where an author attributes violence to God, um, uh, if you read the, that passage or at least the, the surrounding passages carefully, you'll, 
the author himself makes it clear that God didn't lift a finger. For example, Jeremiah, he, he attributes all the violence that the Babylonians did when they invaded uh, uh, Israel, he attributes all that to, to God. In fact, or 50 times, he uses the same verb to, uh, uh, same violent verb to God as he does for Nebuchadnezzar. I earlier mentioned how uh, he, he depicts Yahweh as saying, I'm going to smash you know, parents and children together. Um, I'm not going to have any compassion or mercy. Well, later on, that is said of Nebuchadnezzar, that he has no compassion or mercy. And, and it's clear that God didn't lift a finger against the Israelites. Uh, the only thing God did, and you find this all over the place, side by side with the passages that ascribe violence to God, uh, you have passages where he says, I'm going to hide my face. I'm going to turn you over. I'm, I'm going to have to abandon you. Uh, you're, you're, you're recalcitrant. You're, you're not repenting. So I have no choice but to deliver you over. And I argue that that's all God ever has needed to do uh, to bring judgment on people. So I think there are consequences. I, 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 there's going to be a final judgment. Um, but I, I don't think it, it requires God to act out of character, to ever act violently. For, for God to bring judgment, he doesn't have to do anything. There's wicked people and principalities and powers that are around, that are biting at the bit to engage in violence. To, to bring judgment, all the Father needs to do is to stop doing something, and that is protecting us from those forces. I want to ask one follow-up here that's, that's kind of related. Sure. So, as, as we're thinking about the, the essence of the atonement, right? So, the, the Father withdraws from Jesus on the cross, and Jesus is, is murdered at the hands of, of the principalities and the powers, and, and more immediately, the Roman government. Right. Uh, now, now, throughout, you know, Christian history, I mean, we, we, we all die, right? And there's been many, many martyrs. So what is it about the death of Jesus specifically and the spiritual dynamics at play that make it, uh, number one, have been a, a terrifying prospect for Christ, as we see in going into the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and, and number two, that actually accomplishes atonement? What is it about God withdrawing there and Christ going into that death sure, that sure. is distinct from, you know, you or me dying? Okay, well, uh, you and I aren't God, <laughs> uh, and, and so the fact that this is you know, God incarnate who is doing this, uh, that makes all the difference in the world, um, and, and he's doing this by choice. He didn't have to do this. Uh, this was the plan going into this, and, and th I think there's a number of things you could say around this, uh, about what the cross accomplishes and then maybe how it accomplishes it, though Christians have always disagreed on the mechanics. You're, you're kind of asking, what are the mechanics here? And, and there's always been a lot of controversy around that. But it's easy to state what the cross accomplishes, but it's hard to state how it accomplishes it. But among other things, I'd say this. I think this is the core thing, that, that uh, on the cross, God goes to the infinite extreme out of love for us when we could not have deserved it less. Okay, so he, the all-holy God becomes our sin. In some sense, he, he, he I, enters into total solidarity with our sin. And the perfectly united God, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, take on our God alienation. That's what a curse is. You're, you're alienated from God. And the, the infinite extremity to which God went on our behalf reveals the infinite perfection of the love that he is. Um, and I think that revelation of pure love uh, is, is it, just like light dispels darkness, uh, that love overcomes hatred. And this is what crumbles the kingdom of darkness. It, in principle, brings an end to, to all that's contrary to that love. Um, it's, it's, uh, and here we have the perfect revelation of who God is, which breaks all deception. Uh, the enemy, got, the way he seduced us and brought us into bondage, if you go back to Genesis 3, was by strapping us with a false picture of God. Uh, and he paints God out to be this kind of Machiavellian deity who's insecure and whatnot. 
Well, he, and he's been lying about God ever since. Uh, that's why you look at history of world religions and you got some truly atrocious images of God or the gods. Here, Jesus reveals exactly what God is like down to the curve of his being. And, and uh, that, that frees us uh, from the, the oppressive bondage of this deception that we've been under and allows us to be reconciled to God. That's, I think, the core thing he does. There's other things to be said about it, but I think that's at its core. Some of the people who actually endorse your book, um, it, by and large, have also been a little bit critical of you holding on to the infallibility of the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, I guess you've probably seen some of those uh, uh, criticisms online in the meantime, because it's been a few months since it's been out. You know, Jesus, you claim that Jesus endorses the Old Testament as inspired by God, uh, Theopneustos, and one of the one of the things that I think a lot of people like, you know, those who are sort of in the Brian Zahn, Peter Enns sort of camp, they don't they don't seem to have a need to hold so tightly to did this actually you know did this actually happen? They can kind of hold loosely to those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Why not go that route where it's not so important that we engage or that it's not so important that we uh, abandon what actually happened? Yeah. Well, uh, realize that what a big move that is. Jesus, the way he refers to the Old Testament, and this isn't like one or two verses, this is a whole pattern of his ministry. He identifies it as, he uses the Old Testament says and God says interchangeably. Um, and, and he even quotes, uh, refers to some of these violent texts, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and, and other things like that. Uh, and so I feel if, if I confess him as Lord, and I think I've got very good reasons to believe that he is Lord, I don't feel I'm in a position to correct his theology, especially about something so fundamental. I mean, this is the, everything he's about falls in the framework of, this was a central part of his self-understanding. Um, and, and so it's a huge thing. The other thing is, is that, that this has been the teaching of the church throughout, throughout history. And while I am not a slave to tradition by any means, but I also think that uh, we should not depart from it unless we've got very good reasons for doing so. Um, and I don't, think, I don't think we have very good reasons for doing so. The final thing I'd say about that is this, um, that if you start saying that uh, it never happened, okay, so there was no flood. Uh, and then there was no judgment on Israel, uh, and there, you know, there was no Korah's rebellion, and no parting of the Red Sea, and drowning of Pharaoh's army. You start taking away the violent stuff in the Old Testament, and you don't have much of anything left. I mean, the storyline completely falls apart. It's, just, it's all in tatters. Unfortunately, the main connecting points happen to be violent episodes. Um, and so I, I don't think you, you have, have a coherent biblical narrative there. I, I, now, if I had to, I would. If that was the only option, I'd go that route. But if it's possible to read these in a way where, and then on top of all that, you have Jesus saying, it's all about him. And so I don't feel free to just dismiss anything. It's like, I can't say, oh, that that part's not about him. That's just out there. Uh, If there's a way of reading this where we can see how, in fact, it points to him, then I would think that would be the better option. And... um, what I'm proposing is that there, there is such a way of, of reading the scripture. My worry is that if you feel free to just let go, ah, oh, it didn't happen. Don't, don't worry about it, it didn't happen. It, well, then, then you quit searching. And, and, and you, you, you're, I think you're giving up too early. That Because uh, uh, if you can dig beneath this, you can see how, in fact, it bears witness to the self-sacrificial love of of God. Can I say just a word about how it does that? Because we haven't got to that yet. I mean, I imagine your listeners are out there saying, well, 
How does it work? How does that do, how, how, how does that function? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so the, the gist of it, the core of it, is is this. Um, I began to move in this direction. I began to have that magic eye experience when I asked this question. And it's a question which I had never heard asked before, but once I asked it, it strikes me as the most obvious and important question you can ask. And the question is this, uh, how does the cross, how does the crucifixion of this first century Jewish would-be accused rebel, uh, how does he become the definitive revelation of God for us? Uh, you know, Paul says that we no longer, because we believe that one died for all, therefore all died, we therefore no, regard no one from a fleshly point of view, though we once regarded Christ that way. Uh, he's, he's talking about the natural point of view. You know, just what you see is what you get. Uh, you can look at Christ from a natural point of view, and, and if you do, what you see is a first century criminal who's been crucified by the Romans along with thousands of others. So what is it about the believer who says, no, that's the definitive revelation of God? And what I realized was that it's not what we see on the surface with a natural eye that reveals God to us. It's what we see by faith. When we by, when we by faith look at, at Christ, we believe what Paul calls the message of the cross, that it was God who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and that it was God who was bearing our sin, and it was God who was standing in our place as the curse. By faith, we see that. And that's when we see that the infinite distance that he crossed on our behalf reveals the perfection of his love. And that's how come the cross is the perfect revelation of the love of God. So if the cross reveals uh, what God's truly like, it reveals what he's always been like, including what he was like when he breathed scripture. And so doesn't it make sense to ask the question, um, where else might we find God revealing his beauty uh, by taking on our ugliness? Uh, where else might we find portraits of God, where, where God actually appears ugly, but we there have to exercise the same faith we exercise when we see the cross as the revelation of God, and that is we see through the, the ugly surface. In fact, the surface of the cross is ugly because it mirrors our sin. It, 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 it reflects back to us the ugliness of our sin. Um, so we should ask, where else might we find sin-mirroring portraits of God that that the surface doesn't reveal God. The surface tells us a lot about the people he was dealing with. But we, by faith, look through those, and we can see that God has been bearing his people's sin uh, throughout history. Uh, and and he's, he's, he's been willing to take on their ugliness. As I argue in the book, I think God is always acting toward us as much as possible, to influence us as much as possible. But he's a non-coercive God. Uh, he never lobotomizes people into thinking the truth. Uh, and so... At that point, then, he, will, uh, he, he, he works with them as they are, and he's working with people who are seeing him as just another, or pretty much as another ancient Near, Near Eastern God. Um, and, and so, since he's not going to coerce them to think otherwise, um, uh, he, he's going to take on that image, that, that image in the record of his, his heavenly missionary activity, him coming down to earth. Uh, he'll appear in those ways. Um, and if we trust the cross, if we trust that the cross is what God's really like, and he's therefore not capable of genocide, well, then it forces us to look through the, the surface of that portrait, and we see God doing there exactly what he does on the cross, humbly taking out our sin. You, you use the phrase, something else is going on a lot in crucifixion of the warrior God. Right, right. And, you know, we, we could look at that and say, well, maybe, just to, to push back a little bit on the Old Testament Feel free. You know, thing we're going with, 
it could just be that God, as Peter N. says, God let his children write the story, and therefore God is willing to take on the depiction, but why does that matter that it actually happened anyway? I mean, isn't it just, is it bad? God's taking on of the appearance of sin is bad enough. Why does it matter whether it happened? Because it's just bad enough that he's depicted that way, and it might even be, you can kind of have both, maybe. I'm suggesting maybe you could have both. Like, some of those depictions, maybe some of them happened, some of them didn't, and you can still get your thesis okay, okay, and sure, sure. go that way as okay. well. So, so what I, what I argue in Chris Fixon, the Word of God, in the first volume, uh, around uh, chapter 11, um, is, is this, that, that uh, no, actually it's chapter 8. I, when, I, when we're reading Scripture as God's Word, um, uh, I don't think the question of whether it happened or not is the relevant question. Uh, what I'm reading as God, it's the text that Jesus endorses as God inspired. And so to read the Bible as God's word is to enter into the text. And it's in the context of the text that these things really happened. Um, uh, and my, the responsibility of the interpreter then is to enter into that world. That, this is what Karl Barth called a deep literalism. Uh, it, it's, it's far more uh, profound than, than, than literal literalism. It's the deep literalism of the biblical narrative. And you treat everything as real because that's how it's portrayed in the biblical narrative. Now, if you ask the question, well, how does it correspond with history? Well, now we're doing a historical critical reading of the Bible. Um, and that's a new thing that just started in the 17th century. Uh, we've developed a kind of historical consciousness. Uh, and, and, and so it's hard for us to read the Bible in a pre-critical way. And we're always asking the question of how does it relate to, how does it correspond to, you know, all that. Um, I recommend, and there's a whole movement of folks who are doing this. Uh, it's called the Theological Interpretation of Scripture, um, TIS movement. And they're, they're saying that we need to get back to reading the Bible the way the early church fathers read the Bible. Uh, they didn't read it through a historical critical lens. They just read it as submitted to it. And, and so I'm not here to defend the historicity of these things. Uh, I tend to be conservative on that account just because I think the evidence lines up with it, but not always. I, I think it's pretty, as I read the evidence, it seems like the conquest narrative didn't, doesn't correspond to the, what most historians say actually happened when the Israelites ended up in Canaan. But see, to me, that, that's utterly irrelevant. Uh, I still have to deal with the text. I have to wrestle with this text. And so even if I were to agree that it didn't happen, uh, it doesn't solve anything. And, I, and that's my main beef with these guys, is that if you think it solves something, you're going to quit wrestling with the text. <laughs> my only claim is that we're not free to just dismiss any text. We, ha we have to interpret it and wrestle with it. And so like, with, with Peter Enns, he's so, I, I, I felt he, I think he's so close the only thing he doesn't do that I would do is is connect the the God putting up with their false views of him, uh, connected with the cross. Uh, his really, and to to get that enter into what about how the suffering God must have endured as he's seeing his people think that he's actually capable of commanding genocide. There there, there be suffering involved in that, and and all, all I'm saying is that that's the kind of suffering he does on the cross, uh, and it, it shows that God's always willing to meet people where they're at and gradually, not coercively, influence them to where he wants them to be. Yeah, well, and to be fair to Pete Enzo a little bit, he his book wasn't about defending those depictions. No, 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 so maybe I, I, he just I, I, didn't I, have time to get to it. But, I mean, it, it, okay, so one more possibility. Isn't it possible that Jesus was just divinely accommodating their false belief uh, that they were actual events? It, 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 it's, it's possible. I mean, you can make that argument. Uh, that's clearly the case with certain other things that he says. Um, but here you're talking about something that is absolutely fundamental to his overall worldview, to his sense of identity. Uh, 
he lives and breathes scripture. I mean, it permeates him. Uh, and, and I mean, the first thing that's you read about him is he's in the temple, you know, talking about the scripture. And, and so this is second to his own identity as the son of God. I, I don't know if there's a more fundamental theological point that, that Jesus makes than that scripture all refers to him. Uh, and, and that he is the completion of, of, of this whole narrative. And so I, I think that that's in a different category. You wouldn't want to say that his view of that he's the son of God was just an accommodation. Uh, you know, at some point you have to say there's some things there that are uh, that where he is teaching out of divine revelation. So this is kind of a two-parter, I think. But, you know, you, you talk a lot about the essence of judgment as divine Aikido and this idea that uh, the way God judges is through withdrawing, he lets evil collapse in on itself and, and lets evil destroy evil. So first part of the question is, can you expound on that a little bit for our listeners? And my second part of the question is that uh, if, if we're, we're going at this, this hermeneutic and, and viewing God in this light, uh, couldn't, you, couldn't someone argue that even allowing someone to be destroyed by evil or allowing evil to destroy itself might be an unloving act. I mean, why not have universal redemption? I mean, does it lead to that road? Uh, if, if it was possible, I'm sure God would do that. I mean, I, I, that his heart is for universal redemption. Uh, but if you believe, as I do, that, that agents have free will, um, you can't have a guaranteed redemption, uh, at least as far as I can see. But the more fundamental thing is, you know, what, what, what do we read in Scripture about this? And let me address your second question first. Um, if, if I was walking along and I had a pit bull that I knew just hates people and bites them every chance he gets, and I see a person who's, you know, sitting in a chair and I unleash my pit bull, the pit bull goes up and bites their leg, I would be morally culpable for that pit bull. Uh, it wouldn't do any good for me to say, hey, I didn't bite the leg, I just released the pit bull. So if, that, if that's what God does, then God would be morally culpable for evil. I don't think that's what God does. Uh, the analogy I would use uh, is something more along these lines. Um, you may have had, or some of your listeners may have had, I have had loved ones who fall into alcoholism or drug addiction. And you try to help them nicely as long as you can. You clean up their mess. You take care of them. You pick them up at the bar because they can't drive home. You bail them out when they're in jail. You, you, know, you do these things. And you hope that, that they'll finally you know, wake up and turn around. But sometimes they don't. And there could come a point where you realize that you are simply enabling them. And you're actually harming them because uh, as, long as, you're, as long as you keep taking care of things, uh, they're going to keep on destroying their liver or brain or whatever through, through the drugs. And there can come a point where it grieves your heart and you hope that they'll finally get it, but you have to let them go. Um, and, and I think that is the position God is in. I, as long, you know, Sin is inherently self-destructive. I think there's massive biblical evidence for that, and I reproduce it in, in my books. Um, but God in his mercy pr protects us from the destructive consequences of our sin as much as possible, giving us room to repent, as, as, as the scripture says. But if, it, if he sees that, that is simply allowing us to further get entrenched in sin, to get solidified in it, then it'd be, he'd be harming us if he were to continue to protect us from the consequences of our sin. And so it's at this point that God, I think, withdraws. And Romans 1 is a classic example of this, where you know, God, because of their persistent idolatry and, and all of that, God gave them over to their reprobate minds. If this is the way you want to go, I have to let you go. Um, you know, sin, in its essence, is always just a matter of pushing God away. 
And judgment is simply God letting it happen. God says, okay, I, I'm going to have to let you go. I think he does it with a grieving heart because Jesus grieves over Jerusalem when he's talking about divine judgment. And I think he does it with redemptive motives because you find that woven throughout the scripture. And because when Jesus suffers judgment, it's for the purpose of the resurrection. So I think judgment is always with a hope for uh, redemption, but uh, there's nothing else for God to do. This is another point that's been controversial to my surprise. Uh, I, to my surprise, I haven't been getting attacked by the people I thought I'd be getting attacked by. I'm getting by attacked by folks that I, that I didn't think I'd be attacked by. But um, so some object to the idea that God withdraws and, and turns people over to the consequences of their sin. And my response is, well, then what, what does God do? I, you know, I, I thought I was making a big advance by saying, no, God doesn't act violently. He simply, with a grieving heart, withdraws his protection and allows us to experience the consequences of our sin. If God doesn't even do that, then how do you not have a deist God? Or is there no concept of judgment at all? Um, and, if, and if you know there's no concept of judgment at all, well, good luck making any sense out of the Bible and out of the cross and out of the eschaton. What is their alleged answer to, to your question? I haven't had, heard a good one yet. Uh, okay. They'll say, you know, it's, it's in the moral order of the universe that, that we experience the consequences of our, of our, of our sin. And I agree with that, but what sense then is, is there a, is there a specific divine judgment? Uh, it's, it's, um, yeah. And, and, and then now you have to wipe away. I mean, I don't know how the biblical narrative makes any sense if God doesn't, isn't playing this role, uh, being judgment on the nations, for example, uh, for their, their recalcitrant rebellion. So well, you, I, 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 I didn't answer your first question, though. Go, so, go ahead and jump into that, yeah. Okay, like everything else, I, I, I go back to the cross. I think that's where we should start, finish, and stay in as we're thinking about God. The, everything through the lens of the cross. Uh, this is the definitive, unsurpassable revelation of God. And, and uh, what I see there is, ask the question, how does God defeat evil on the cross? Well, what I notice is this. Uh, Throughout uh, the Gospels, demons recognize Jesus. They, they, they know he's the son of God, but they don't know why he's here, right? They're like, why, why are you here? Is it our time already? You know, what's up? Um, Paul tells us that if the archonton, if the, prince, if the princes of this world had understood the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 6. Uh, because by means of the cross, they are being brought to nothing. Okay, so... The principalities and powers were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, they worked through by means of, of agents who were vulnerable to their influence. Uh, you know, Satan entered into Judas. He was participating that way and things of that sort. And, and, and so they crucified the Son of God. And yet, it was the cross, Paul tells us, that is doing them in. Uh, in some ways, they unemployed themselves because when Jesus is nailed to the cross, everything that they had against us is now eradicated and, and they are being brought to nothing. So what God did, as I see it, God used Satan's and uh, the principalities and powers' own ignorance, their inability, they, they didn't understand the wisdom of God because the wisdom is driven by love and to the degree that an agent is evil, they don't understand love. Um, they couldn't fathom the possibility that God would want to come down here and do everything possible to save us. It, it, it apparently never occurred to them that it might be God's plan that Jesus would give his life for us. And so they, their own self-imposed evil that they themselves chose, now is the means by which they are being brought to nothing. And so God turns evil against itself. Um, he just wisely outsmarts evil. That's what Aikido is. Aikido is this martial arts technique whereby um, uh, you never act aggressively toward the ag one who's aggressive towards you. What you're able to do, however, is to deflect the aggression of the aggressor back on themselves. So they end up hitting themselves. And, and in Aikido, you do that uh, 
ultimately for the purpose of trying to help them see that what they're doing is evil. Uh, I think this is what God does. Uh, he's, he, as it says in Psalms, he causes their violence to ricochet back on their heads. You find that phrase a number of times. Uh, or the, the trap that they set for others, they themselves fall into it. Um, it says the, the king of, of uh, uh, Hebanon, the violence that you brought on animals will come back on you. Uh, you have this phrase, that they're, they're punishing themselves, they're bringing this on themselves. And, and there's a ton of scriptures around that. And that's what the cross would lead us to expect. And God always judges sin that way. Uh, ends up it, it, turning it back on itself. People experience the consequences of their, their, uh, their, their choices. And ultimately, uh, evil self implodes. Greg, you cover a lot in Crucifixion of the Warrior God and in a much uh, more condensed way, Cross Vision. And so, you've, you're making a big argument for this, and it's very heavily dependent on the nature of, of God as that we see in Christ. You're not going to convince everybody, of course. I mean, what? people are going to, people are going <laughs> to, sorry to break it to you. Um, you know, you're going to convince people at varying levels. So, for those who, and, and I have sort of a two-part to this question, for those who don't buy 100% into your argument, you know, let's say they buy into 50% or 80 or whatever you want to do it, um, you know, what do you hope they walk away with on, on either of these books? And, you know, to correspond to that question, how much does your thesis depend on an open view of the future? Because I think that's the other thing that I've that I have heard and seen online is that you hold too tightly to that, and if you if you don't buy that, you can't buy the rest. I don't know what you, what your response is. Oh, to that. I I don't think it depends very much at all on the open view of the future. It does depend a lot on believing in free will. Um, that God's a non-coercive God, and uh, uh, yeah, it, it, the thesis falls apart if you don't accept that. Um, what I hope people walk away with, with is this. I mean, the whole thing. My whole passion. And writing these things was not just an, you know to solve an intellectual conundrum. Um, I think that your picture of God is the most important fact about your life. Uh, your mental picture, your mental conception of God, will completely determine your relation with God because your relationship is mediated through your mental conception of Him. Uh, I've said a number of times that the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. And and what I hope people walk away from, whether they whatever degree they agree with me or not. Uh, is that, that God looks like Jesus Christ on the cross and nothing but Jesus Christ on the cross, to have a truly beautiful picture of God. Uh, the people that have been most helped so far, in terms of, if I'm accessing this anecdotally, have talked to me and have written me and stuff, but it's people who um, wanted to believe that. They, they, they saw the reasons for believing that, but they also believe in the Bible. Uh, and and uh, like there's this lady who said this to me uh, probably six weeks ago now, but... Um, she was just crying uh, because she was saying, "My relation with God—it was like it was like I—I I met the, guy, the man of my dreams, uh, who seemed like the perfect husband, but I found out that he had slaughtered a schoolroom of children a number of years back." And she said, "I could never fully give my heart to a guy who ever did that." And that's how I felt about God. I—I I, I wanted to believe he's good, but as long as I believed that he did these atrocious things, I—I I, I had a reservation in my heart. And then she just said through tears, I, I now feel like I have permission to really believe that God is as beautiful as is revealed in Jesus Christ. That, I think, is, that's, that's the jackpot. Whatever sense you make of the Old Testament, fine. Here's one way of, of thinking about it. But I it would encourage people to anchor everything they think about God on the person of Jesus Christ. I know that you live in a community with uh, uh, several people, um, and you and I think it's Paul Eddy is your close buddy, and you guys don't always see eye to eye. Are there other people that are close to you who 
who you haven't convinced yet? Paul says he's 95% there. Uh, he has a little reservation. And uh, I'm not going to even suspect that that maybe is because he wants to see how this thing goes down and what implications it might have for his job. But uh, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure where Brexit Cavi, is, uh, to what degree he buys into it. Uh, he'll be coming to this conference. So, by the way, I'm having a conference on this, uh, sponsored by Renew, uh, R E K N E W, which is my ministry outside of Wilton Hills Church, on September 21st through the 23rd. And we're going to, Brexit Cavi will be there, Rachel Hall Evans will be there, um, Dennis Edwards, and we have a number of speakers coming. And uh, uh, I don't even know quite what, what they all think about these things. But uh, we've, I've had plenty of pushback. I mean, this has been a fun dialogue for, for, for 10 years. Uh, and um, yeah, so it's been productive. So as we begin to close up, uh, Greg, I just want to point out that to our listeners that you also have a podcast. And uh, one of the things that I think is a little bit unique about your podcast is that it's relatively short. And so you don't have to, you know, commit a whole commute to listening to uh, your, your podcast. Uh, what's the title of the podcast? Apologies and explanations, something like that. Uh, Dan Kent is the one who came up with the idea, and he named it, and it's on the Renew website, renew.org, with a K. Uh, I think it's called Apologies and Explanations or something like that. Uh, yeah, you can, if, if you go to Renew, you'll find it. We actually engaged in a three-hour discussion, and then he just breaks them down into separate questions, about five minutes apiece. Good. Well, we'll encourage our listeners to check that out. Greg, your your work has been very influential to a lot of libertarians, whether you realize it or not. I think you've you've uh, probably heard that in the past. Uh, but uh, thank you very much for all of your work. Thank you for this big, massive book and for Cross Vision, which I'm really excited to recommend to people. I appreciate that. Thanks so much. Yeah. For those who aren't going to read 1,300 pages, I'm glad you wrote the smaller one as well. Um, not everybody's a geek like uh, Nick and I are. Uh, for for that kind of stuff. So thank you for joining us. Some people actually don't like footnotes. It's hard to believe, but there are people out there who don't like footnotes. Like, man, that's the juiciest part. <laughs> Honestly, I think that's why it took me uh, as long as it did to read the book because I kept. <laughs> I'm a footnote addict, so I, I, I just. I, so and thank you for not doing endnotes. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> that would have like, taken those. even twice oh, as long. Going back and forth, I hate those. Oh, it's got to be footnotes. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate uh, the invitation, and I hope that uh, folks check this out especially those who are really struggling with you know, those Old Testament portraits of God. Well, that wraps it up with another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. You can also donate at libertarianchristians.com slash donate if you'd like to be a supporter. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Podcast.